part of the Queen of Soul. Today we bring you the Queen of Conservative Talk. Vicki McKenna, talk show host extraordinaire at News Talk 1130 WISN in Milwaukee and News Talk 1310 WIVA in Madison, joins us on this very special edition of MacGyver Newsmakers. Ma'am, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having us in your fine radio studio abode. Matt, could, could you then, if I am the queen of talk radio, like the queen of soul, could you please call me Aretha? I certainly I will. I have no problem with that. here on out, please just refer to me as... Aretha. Aretha, <laughs> let me ask you this. That's going to trigger everybody. Let's just start out with a trigger. Well, it's what you basically do between 2 and 6 o'clock on a daily basis. I make an effort. No, what you do is you preserve the First Amendment and you preserve talk in the city of Madison where it is most needed and in Milwaukee and throughout Wisconsin. But I want to go back, Aretha, if I could. Um, <laughs> <laughs> tell, tell me, about, why, why did you decide to get into this business? What happened? You know, we, we, I've heard Rush Limbaugh tell the story about how much he hated school. Just I hated loved it. school. He felt it like, he, like he was a prisoner. And so he heard some guy on the radio talking one time, and, and he thought, God, that guy is having so much fun. I want to be part of that. Was that the kind of experience you had, or how did you get here? No, I loved school, actually. Mm -hmm. I went on to graduate school um, in Marxist social theory. Technically, it was social <laughs> theory, but, it, but since it was Marx, I always describe it as Marxist social So it's... I was in graduate school for, you know, revolution, mm -hmm. and, uh, and I, I liked school a lot. It occurred to me when I was in my first year at uh, University of Denver that, that what I was studying was <clears throat> nonsense. Um, and I'll tell you a quick story. I, had a, a, I decided to study sociology when I was a senior in high school. I decided mm -hmm. that's what I wanted to go and, and dedicate my college career to at a very expensive school that had very expensive student loans to pay back. A remarkable return on investment for that yeah, particular where, where do you go with that? There's, yeah. an old, there's an old comedy bit with Steve Martin where he says, I, had a, I got a philosophy degree. Where do you go with that? Do you open up a philosophy <laughs> store? Well, You sell falafels, and you I, call it philosophical I falafels. So, sociolos or what? Uh -huh. So I thought, no, I will, I will be a professor. That was my goal. Mm. So I did, I, but in, in senior in high school, I decided to study sociology, and... I had an English teacher. I had, um, I had, for four years. I took him. He was the hardest teacher in the in the school, and and I was just determined to do well in his class. I loved school. I was a little grade grubber. I studied all the time. I, I, you know, so at the end of my four years, I walked up to my teacher. Fred Peterson was his name. Good old Fred. And I said, um, and I said it was wonderful having you as a teacher. You really, and I wanted to thank him for for the wonderful job he had was done. Was Fred a communist? Fred was close. Yeah. Fred was very liberal. Mm -hmm. Well, what are you going to study in school, Vicky? And I said, well, sociology. And he said, well, you know that's BS, don't you? Only he didn't say BS. Just, you, you know that's BS, don't you? I'm a senior in high school. Wow. Last day of school. And I say, oh, oh, oh I, it's not. It's the study of group behavior, and it's very important. And, and I, I muttered something. You know, I'd, so four years of college. I had to take a class in Karl Marx to graduate with my degree wow. at Beloit College. You needed to take Karl Marx, at least in 1980, between 1986 and 1990 you did. And I went on to graduate school studying the same thing. A year into my education in Marxist social theory, I'm in my, my theory class, and my professor had said something about, you know, some, some commie nonsense. 
and I, and I raised my hand and I said, how did you get from point A to point B, essentially? I'm, I'm kind of summarizing here. He says, well, Vicki, it's a leap of faith. It's a leap of faith. A and I said, excuse me, professor, but we got rid of God a long time ago because this is a Marxist theory class. So you're going to have to do better than faith. Yeah. He thought that was so funny. He thought it was so charming. Oh, he chortled. Oh, oh, oh my clever little graduate student here. And in that, in that moment, I hear my English teacher, Fred Peterson, in my head saying, you know it's BS, don't you? And so I decided I was going to endeavor to do other things. And I decided I thought media would be cool. I just didn't know how to get into it. I loved watching Nightline with Ted Koppel. Ted Koppel was my favorite anchor. Um, and, I, and I loved listening to talk radio. I loved uh, Bill Curtis on WBBM. Oh, yeah. um, and so I, I just tried to kick open some windows and some doors and see if I couldn't get my foot in the business that way. It took some time. But eventually I was able to find someone willing to take a risk on, you know, on a, on a beret-wearing, espresso-drinking, Karl Marx-supporting Marxist. Well, I think that folks in our generation, uh, people of a certain age, as we like to define ourselves, all remember Ted Koppel, of course, in the breaking news when Gumby was shot. And so I know a lot of radio talk show hosts, a lot of news people got involved at that time because of that seminal moment in American broadcast history. But I want to I focus on that a little bit. You know, it's interesting. I think there are people, maybe casual listeners of the Vicki McKenna Show, or maybe they're far left wing nuts uh, and they, oh, Vicki McKenna, you know, she is uh, this uh, conservative and all of these, you know, uh, they try to paint you into this box. But you have been where these liberals have been. You have been where the, the socialists have been. You have been on their campuses. You have been in their fortresses. They have been in my brain. They have been in your brain, and it was because of your experience with them that your perspective began to change. It's true. Um, it initially, I, I, I pulled myself out of the fugue, um, and it was maybe easier for me than it is for some. I, I had a core value system that was conservative. My dad used to joke and say that Limbaugh was a liberal. <laughs> Actually, I think he, he was serious about that, but, uh, you know, in, in my mind, I just think that's just funny. <laughs> um, and so I had a core value system that was work hard, um, you know, don't expect someone to give you a handout. It was very much a, a, a mindset that you, would have, that you would have expected from somebody from the greatest generation. My father mm -hmm. was born in 1919. Uh, my mother was born a little bit later on, but, but both of them had the, these values. They were both, my father had come from poverty, my mother came from near poverty, and there really weren't any kind of programs out there. And so they were, very, they were successful. They achieved the American dream. And they weren't going to listen to a bunch of kids tell them that we couldn't accomplish something or it's too hard. So that's my background. Now I'm trying to make excuses for everybody else. I wouldn't make them for myself. And so I think that ultimately when I started to encounter the real world, I left graduate school, I, I started to get jobs, you know, I, I, I worked my way through multiple different jobs, 41 to be precise. <laughs> but who's counting? But who's counting me? Uh, I was fired from about half of them. And, uh, but it was, it, was in, it was experiencing life outside a vacuum, the academic vacuum that, that made me go back to my own core value system and realize that if I don't make excuses for me and that's a ticket to success, then is making excuses for other people a ticket to their failure. And mm -hmm. so that's how ultimately it took some time, but ultimately I was able to just kind of shake it off. Vicki McKenna, a.k.a. Aretha McKenna, joining us on 
this edition of MacGyver Newsmakers. Um, I want to go back to your dad a little bit because I, you know, having gotten to know you over the last year and consider you a, a good friend, not just uh, someone, a, a colleague in this crazy business of uh, reporting on and talking about politics, but I remember you talking on the radio and you've told me stories about your dad and uh, how he, you know, he, he blue collar worker and uh, the old union days and the old union bosses. And I think folks will recall you standing up in 2011, standing up to big labor organized unions who were trying to thwart the, the democratic process, small d process here, trying to remove uh, Governor Scott Walker from office. And you stood up. You've got a background in the tactics, if you sure. will of big labor. Well, I'll tell you how <clears throat> how the, it, it came to be that I became highly skeptical of labor unions when I was a kid when this happened. Now, again, as I'm going through this Marxist fugue, it's all fine for everybody else. Just don't impose it upon me or my family. And I was a child, maybe seven, eight years old, and a man pulled a, a car into our driveway in Rockford, Illinois, and in those old you know, just slightly post-war houses had single car garages, single car driveways. <clears throat> so if you pull a car in someone's driveway, you block the driveway. Um, he blocks the driveway, and I remember he was driving a gold Chevelle, Matt, if that matters. Gold Chevelle. He gets Classic. out of his car <clears throat> and proceeds to sit on the hood of the car with a gun, with a long gun. Wow. Now, <clears throat> I don't know if it's a shotgun or a rifle, but it was a long gun sitting in his lap, and he just sat there. And I'm looking out the picture window, and I see this man sitting in our driveway, with a gun in his lap on the hood of his car, and I run to get my father. And my dad was that, was that classic dad, couldn't shake him, couldn't, you know, couldn't get him to freak out. He was fearless, that guy. And I run and get my dad, and I say, Daddy, there's a man in the driveway with a gun. My dad looks out the window, and that's the first time I ever saw my dad terrified. He orders us kids into the basement, tells us not to come out until we say it's okay. And I find out, find out later that... My dad had spoken with a colleague. He worked. At, he was a UAW member. He'd spoken with a colleague during a strike that was going on about how poor we had become, because there wasn't strike pay. There wasn't anything like that, and how we were not be, we were not paying the bills. We were not. My dad was having a hard time affording food, and said, "I might have to cross. I might have to cross the picket line." To a, a colleague and a friend, someone he considered a friend at work, that guy called the union enforcer. And it was the union enforcer who pulled into our driveway. Never forgot it, and I never forgave it. And so when I started to see this, this, these antics, and I first experienced the antics, by the way, by the public sector unions in Wisconsin in 2007, when we actually had a tax rally at the state capitol, and I had received death threats and people saying they were going to put bombs under my car because mm. I was standing up against a $750 million tax increase that Jim Doyle wanted to impose on Wisconsin. Right. And, it, and it, so it, it, that, that recollection, that memory, and my father never forgot or forgave that either, although he remained a union member for years because he was that scared, um, really, I think, d did color my reaction to the way the unions reacted to the introduction of Act 10. That's certainly understandable. And like I said, you have lived and you have observed some truly remarkable times. You have commentated on those times, of course, and the last eight years, of course, have been truly remarkable. Vicki McKenna joining us in this edition of MacGyver Newsmakers. I want to go back there, uh, if we could, just a bit. 
uh, when all of this was breaking down in 2011. You had a, a governor, a strong conservative governor. You had a strong conservative legislature swept into the legislature in what was then the Republican Revolution of 2010, the backlash against Obamacare and big government and Obama-style uh, politics and policy. Uh, this was quite a fecund time, if you will, for all kinds of different discussion that got quite heated. What was it like living through that, living through the death threats and the nastiness and all of that? It sucked. <laughs> I, I mean, there's no other way to, to – now, when this – I recently got married, but at the time, um, back in 2000, you know, up until 2017, <clears throat> I lived alone. Mm -hmm. So I'm living on the north side of Madison while this is all going on. And my neighbors stopped talking to me. People who used to trust me to watch their cats or take care of their, you know, keep an eye on their house when they were gone or would, would stand across the fence line and, and have a chat for 25 minutes and wave as you just suddenly, you know, I was ghosted by, na my, by, by my neighbors. Mm -hmm. and, and at that time is when the, the threats and those, I, was, I would get email threats. I remember specifically an email threat I got that said um, it had my address in Madison, and it said beneath it, we know you have dogs. Oh. <clears throat> so now I've got, you've got me walking the perimeter of my house, making sure that no one's, you know, I mean, you, you know, you start thinking all kinds of crazy things. Is someone going to try to poison my dogs? Mm -hmm. I remember when I criticized the uh, firefighters union, the Madison Firefighters Un Union, Local 311, because they had organized a protest, um, a disruptive protest of our rally at the state capitol uh, in support of Scott Walker's uh, budget repair bill in Act 10. And, and for that, I had someone email me claiming to be a firefighter, and of course nobody, no law enforcement was interested in this at the time, saying um, it would be a, it'd be a shame if your house caught fire. Oh. It'd be a real shame. I mean, so, you know, was, that, was that serious or was that just trying to psych you out? It doesn't matter because you take it seriously, and this is every day nonstop. I'd listen to my voicemail and it'd be somebody, you know, sounding ominous and threatening me. I remember a, a, a police officer friend of mine uh, who had called me and had to leave work and, and walk around the sidewalk of his home to call me because he didn't want any, anybody he worked with to hear this, was telling me that at a shift change meeting, you know, there's my picture with the words public enemy beneath it and, wow. and, and indications of what my license plate is, you know, huh? and I'm thinking... Are you people nuts? This is this is demented. As I'm experiencing this, and all I'm doing is a, I'm a talk show host. I'm not, you know, some of the senators who have to be chased, um, who have nails thrown in their driveway, who if they get on, the, they had to they had to park their cars at Truax and take a bus to the Capitol because the protests were so insane. And protesters would surround the bus with sitting state Wisconsin senators. And try to tip over the bus. I mean, I, I couldn't even imagine working in that environment where it's nonstop. Every time you have to go to the bathroom, you've got to confront 50 people telling you that you're, you're a subhuman piece of you-know-what. And <clears throat> so, yeah, it's, it's, they, that's their style. That's the left style. And that's, that's the thug tactics that were brought to bear that I think have become, unfortunately, um, a blueprint for some of what you see now going on with Antifa and some of these other groups out there. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's designed to terrify you into silence and inaction. 
And, uh, and the reason why they do it is because a lot of times it works. Didn't work for you. Didn't work for me. I know that. I know that each time that you confronted a mob and you have confronted a mob of angry people, angry liberals, uh, every time that you have gotten those phone calls, it charged and recharged your batteries. That's how you Oh, yeah, operate. I'll spend a few minutes freaking out, and then, uh, and then I just get really mad. Exactly. That's what happens. And I, not only do you get really mad, I know you get really focused. Yeah. And it becomes very compelling radio, first and foremost. And it becomes very important for the First Amendment because we know how many people have just given up. And we can understand that. Let's face it. I mean, this is a state that... This is the state that brought you the John Doe investigation. The, the Designed to silence. Different tactic. Right. Different type of thug tactic, but designed to terrify you into silence and inaction and submission. And it worked. It did. It worked. Until a few brave people stood up and fought back. But it worked for a long time. And when they did stand up and fight back, they were able to come to you. Uh, and you, I don't know how many different segments you have done over the last several years. Not, as many, not as many investigative reports as you have done. Uh, perhaps, but in terms of being able to shine a brighter and a broader light on this stuff, you know, you're, you and your show have been extremely effective in doing that, and it's so very important. And I, I bring up the John Doe investigation because in many ways we live in a post-John Doe investigation world, but we're still there. I mean, the battle over the First Amendment, the battle over free speech, particularly on college campuses. We have the President of the United States now signing an executive order trying to bring some security to the First Amendment on college campuses. Uh, as intense as Act 10, 2011, all those protests, the recall years of 11 and 12 were, it's been nonstop. It just hasn't stopped. How? How do we deal with that in terms of citizens of this state? And how do we deal with that in terms of the battle that must go on in defense of basic constitutional rights? Well, <clears throat> that's a big question. and it, That's why they pay me the mediocre yeah, bucks. Yeah, well, Matt, it also doesn't have an easy answer. Um, how, so if the first question is to how to handle the nonstop, you know, shelling, these are we're, we're constantly carpet bombed with every nutty idea, and the moment you react to one, the next thing you know, you you've got another mob of people wanting to run you out of your job on Twitter, um, you know, or 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 harassing somebody because they they thought it was okay to support Donald Trump as president or Scott Walker as governor, and their car gets keyed, they get you know harassed, whatever it might be. So you just gotta. You, Conservatives, freedom-minded people have to engage first off, and this is no longer this is no longer watch TV, a, a watch TV kind of fight. You're in it, um, and if you're not in it, you're 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 contributing to the disaster. If you don't actively engage in it, you're contributing to the disaster. So shutting your your blinds and locking your doors and taking the stickers off your car and all of that stuff. Um, it doesn't help. That's that's helping the other side um, maintain the fee the level of fear that has got a whole bunch of people paralyzed. And I'm going to take a, a quick detour here. I mean, look at the paralysis of of anybody to stand up and defend Christian, the Christian religion in the religious attacks, the bigoted religious attacks on Judge Brian Hagedorn. I mean, it, it where is everyone? 
Wisconsin is just, it's filled to the brim with Christians, right? Where is everyone? Instead, the left, and they're using their religiously bigoted attacks on Christianity, is actually getting people, bullying people, into agreeing to attack Brian Hagedorn on, on his Christian. And I think to myself, you are letting left-wing politics get you to deny your own God. That's how powerful the, the, their tactics are. It's how, because they're, they're actually able to get people to deny hmm. their own God. I find that extraordinary. So you can't, you just don't cave. It could be hard sometimes. And, and, and having to accept that is what a lot of people don't want to have to do. In terms of where to go, how to, how to sort of make it better in the long term, I'll tell you what, if the conservatives on an individual level, on a group level, on a legislative level, do not fight back for the heart and soul of the content of the classroom of American education, we're done. The reason why, what is it, 70% of graduating college students support socialism, something like 64% of them think that, that free speech should not cover offensive speech. If I'm offended, you shouldn't have free speech. The antithesis of the First Amendment is because we haven't educated people correctly in what it means to be American, what the Bill of Rights is all about, what the importance of the Constitution was, and what our founders had in mind to protect us from tyranny. If, I don't know how that's not obvious to everyone, but Matt, unfortunately, it seems to me it's not obvious to everyone. Well, it's pretty clear that over the last couple of generations, we've lost a sense of context and history. And the first thing I point to is the basic history of founding fathers, James Madison going to the mat and fighting so that there isn't a religious test in order to be a public servant in this country, clearly stated in the Constitution, but yet we have that playing out in the state Supreme Court race, don't we? Yeah, we sure do. And again, where is the fight? Mm -hmm. Where The fight is not organized. The fight isn't even on an individual level, and everyone who stays silent on things like this is part of the problem. I don't mean to say that you're actively facilitating you know, the, 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 the fast slide to tyranny and fascism that we seem to be on in this country, um, but you're not slowing it down. And if you're not slowing it down, that's a problem. So in, in, you're talking about just the attacks on religious freedom, which I think five years ago we wouldn't have expected to be so overt. How about the open assault on the Electoral College? Hmm. This is now considered uh, uncontroversial. You've got CNN and the Washington Post running, running interference for this idea, which would eviscerate the voice of Wisconsin, Indiana, Wyoming. Nebraska, Wyoming. Hmm. Um, we, would know, we would cease to matter. And it is, it is exactly the opposite of the intention of what our founders had to make sure that a nation that was filled with so many different types of people represented those people effectively. This was, this was part of the way they thought, hmm, I think we can guard against tyranny if we do it this way. And the left would say, but that gets in the way of my ability to actually win elections. So instead of trying to appeal to the people, instead they try to take away the protections for the people. I think it's extraordinary that that's not controversial anymore. Well, that's the perspective now, isn't it? It's not the United States of America, it's the United States of California, because if only we would have counted California and New York and some of the other big blue states, Hillary Clinton would have won. It was a popular contest, you see, and not a representative contest. And that's not how the framers set it up. And of all of the genius that was, that was baked into the American system, 
the Electoral College is one of the great blessings that we have received uh, from those dedicated people. I know you don't have much time because you actually have a radio show that you're going to have to do here relatively soon. So I just want to get quickly to today. Very interesting battle this week going on between the, the, the budget battles and the usual political partisan stuff. Now we have a Dane County judge who has weighed in on the extraordinary session of December and has said that those laws that came out of that session are unconstitutional because it was the, the meeting was not called in a constitutional fashion, which if you drill down, sets up all kinds of problems for the many myriad extraordinary sessions oh, we've had over the many decades. How about Pfizer Forum? How uh -huh. about Foxconn? How about a whole bunch of union contracts? How about blood alcohol level at uh, point zero eight? Also are, an extraordinary session th measure. Think about the radicalism of that judge's decision and how, how even when it comes to the judiciary, the judicial branch, the, the left looks at that as another arm of, essentially as a super legislature that cannot be appealed, that cannot be debated, it will have the final say, um, which is why, again, because the final say ultimately will, will be the Wisconsin Supreme Court, uh, which is why they want judges like the one in Dane County to populate the Wisconsin Supreme Court, because they want to never have to make the case legislatively. Um, they couldn't get Democrats. If you called the vote today, you could not get Democrats to agree that the, the joint rule that allows them to call a legislative special session is unconstitutional or to rescind that rule. You couldn't get Democrats to vote for that. They know it, which is why they go to a liberal activist Dane County judge who is willing to upend over 300 laws, including very big deals like Pfizer Forum, like you know, gaming compacts, like mm -hmm. union contracts, like the box or like uh, like the Foxconn project, and, and many others, um, because it's a small, it's a short-term victory for the left. Because Tony Evers would be able to use um, that opening to do things that would not have legislative support, and and I also think that Judge Neese knew that. Ultimately, his decision is probably not going to, to stand, and I think he also, I think Tony Evers knew, which is why I think very rapidly they tried to rush to get some things done before that injunction was ultimately lifted, and I think it's probably going to be lifted. That's a good point. So the follow-up here is this Act 10 and right to work all over again. Those are two laws that the left absolutely hated, and they won early on because they went to Dane County, as they always do, and then when it gets to the appeals court level, when it gets to the federal appeals court level, as it has in the past, and then when it gets to the state Supreme Court level, they lose every time. Is this another one? of those examples? I, I don't, I, I can't predict um, how the court is, I, I, smarter people with better pay than I, um, however, do believe that the Wisconsin Supreme Court is not going to look favorably upon Judge Neese's decision, um, <clears throat> simply because um, this has been going on as a regular practice, it is in common practice, um, there is already a Supreme Court case on whether or not this joint rule actually, you know, ultimately is, quote, you know, by law, rule of law. Um, so, you know, smarter constitutional lawyers out there are suggesting the Wisconsin Supreme Court will look favorably upon this. Um, but it gives you an idea of what, of, of how far the left will go and how, and how determined their own judges are to advance politics over the rule of law. 
that should terrify people. Mm. We are visiting, of course, today on the special edition of MacGyver Newsmakers with Vicki, Aretha McKenna. <laughs> I love that. Absolutely. The queen Let's of conservative talk radio. Well, you know, Aretha Franklin, no doubt about it. Uh, the queen of soul, no doubt about it. You are the queen of conservative talk radio. We now turn our attention to what we normally do is five fast questions. Now, we have done that with everybody from... U.S. Senator Ron Johnson to Speaker Robin Voss to uh, Majority Leader Fitzgerald. But because you are the queen of talk radio, you get seven questions, wow. seven fast questions. Now, remember, I say this to everyone. I have seven points in my crown. You have uh, a thousand points of light. <laughs> remember, not a lot of thought is needed in answering I'm these questions because certainly not a, a lot of thought was used in producing them. Okay. Okay. I'm are ready. you ready? Strapped in, so. ready to go. I, yeah, yes. Question number one. Are you like the 1970s English hard rock band Foghat, a fool for the city? <laughs> Which city? Well, whatever city. They didn't specify in the big Foghat hit. I am uh, I'm a fool for visiting the city, but I am uh, I'm not a fool for living in the city. Yeah, hence your departure from the Correct. city a few years Correct. back. Correct. Yes. Are you cuckoo for cocoa puffs? I detest cocoa puffs. Do you really? I really do. Okay. I think they taste like stale cardboard. Sorry, Sonny. <laughs> I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a honeycomb kind of gal. Honeycomb. We were you know that <laughs> was going to be the natural next question. And it's tasty. It's downright tasty. It's not small. Can I ask you this? Are you now or have you ever been a member of the Republican Party? <laughs> I, I uh, Am I now? I don't know if my membership has lapsed, but yes, I have been a member of the Republican Party. I occasionally forget to send in my dues because um, am I uh, – so I, I don't know if I'm active or not. Well, fair enough. The progressives will ask you. I don't think I am. We'll ask you that before a congressional hearing one of these days. <laughs> Can you – Ever imagine a point in your life where you will say, you know, come to think of it, that, that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is right? No. Okay. No. You grow out of that. Or you, you, you hope to um, grow out of that by experiencing real life. Unfortunately, the left is trying to change real life to continue to support willful ignorance. So um, <laughs> I, I, I never was quite that bad, by the way. I was never quite that deep in the in the uh, drack of intellectual vacuity. Or knee-deep in the hoopla, as uh, <laughs> Starship once said. All right, how about this? This is question number five. What book should absolutely be required reading in every American classroom today? Oh, oh that's, that's, I got a few. Um, <clears throat> I would say, uh, I would say Witness by Whitaker Chambers. I knew you were gonna say that. Um, and if I had a second to pick, I had a second to pick. I would pick the Screw Tape Letters mm. by C.S. Lewis. But I would, I would, if I, mm. if I, um, if I could require just one book, um, Witness by Whitaker Chambers. It's a long one. It's fascinating, and you will learn more reading that book about the rise of um, socialism in America than any other thing you could possibly read. It's it's uh, it's well done. It's lyrical in its in its prose and. Um, and it's an important story that I'm, I'm afraid is going to be lost. Mm. We would have also accepted the life and times of Larry David. 
Um, you know, we talked about your dad a lot, and uh, you have uh, told me, and you've told your listening audience, you've shared a number of stories, personal stories, about your mom and your dad over the years. But what is the funniest thing your dad ever told you? You know, dads have these the, this way about them, where they have wisdom condensed in a very short sentence. And a lot of times it's while they're yelling at the kids, telling them to get out of something. The funniest thing or the funniest thing he ever told me? Mm-hmm. Or the funniest thing he ever said. Well, I, I would I would take the funniest thing he ever said too, as as long right, as, as is, long as we can air it. It is my father who <laughs> who said. I don't think this is terribly funny. I suppose, but it relates to the funniest thing he ever said. But he he said that every <clears throat> every everybody on the planet should be able to drive a manual transmission. I've had this discussion oh, on the yeah, air. This right. comes from my dad. That everyone on the planet should be able to drive a manual and transmission. You can. And I can. I, I learned to drive. You want, you want a confession? On a stick shift. You, you can't. A, I can't. I'll yeah. teach you how to drive. I tried my, you know my brother Tim, the Tulsa barrister. Uh, he is 10 years older than yours truly, and he once tried to teach me how to drive in a manual transmission, <laughs> and there was screaming for six blocks down <laughs> Lutheran Street. That did it for me. I got baptism by fire. My dad said, all right, yeah. you drive yourself to work at a, at a job at uh, 16, and I had to take the old Chevette. Oh, the Chevette. That was See, I had a Chevette, but it was, uh, yeah. it was automatic, nope. and it automatically did 35 miles an hour up a hill. Yeah, well, I had to I had to be at a stop sign on a hill and had to have to figure out myself how to hold that oh, car on the hill with the clutch because yeah. I had a line of cars behind me. So so you learn, you know. That was one of his. Because your dad things. fixed a clutch because that was important. It was clutch to fix a clutch back in those days. No, nah, he couldn't. He couldn't yeah. fix a clutch, but my brother could fix a clutch, and so he became the de facto uh, auto mechanic. And the funny funniest thing, well, I don't know if it's the funniest thing. I'd have to sit. I got a list of funny things my dad used to say, like. Um, you're dumber than a box of rocks. Um, you know, get a haircut, you blank, blank hippie. He used to say all kinds of funny things. But uh, but related to the to the manual transmission, every time I'd grind the gear, he'd say, oh, <laughs> grind me a pound. <laughs> grind it till you find it. And he would say it like that. Yeah. He would use Like it, Lucky Charm. Oh, grind <laughs> oh, me a pound. Oh, it's magically delicious. Yes. Like <laughs> exactly like that. <laughs> grind it till you find it. He was Polish too, so it made no sense. By the way, I think, I've, I, I think I've seen that phrase on the internet somewhere, and I just want you. <laughs> I to, should have that I want on you to avoid that that uh, page on he the used internet. To, he used to, of course, tell people what a you know, terrible. Grind it till you find it, Victoria. <laughs> terrible driver I was. Oh, oh no, that's he was nice. great. He was. He said a lot of funny things. That was just the one that came to mind instantly when you asked that. Question. I've told you. I've, I told you my old man's uh, the funniest. He's got a bunch of them too, and it, it's like your. He's like your dad. Just part and parcel that generation. And he used to say, that guy is so dumb, he couldn't pour pee out of a boot if the instructions were on the heel. <laughs> that was one of my favorite I things. Enjoy to say. I enjoy that. I enjoy that. Was, that was I like good. my my dad used to say if ifs and buts were candy and nuts, everything would be a Merry Christmas. <laughs> you'll hear me, you'll hear if you ever listen to yeah. the show, you'll hear it, these your things. Show you'll is say, peppered with witticisms and and, and I've I've ripped them all off from my dad. I should put them together in a book, and then, of course, I'll give them my own tweet. It's better stuff to me than Oscar Wilde ever considered. Yeah, sure. All right, final uh, question, question number seven for you. And I asked this of Senator Johnson the other day, if you recall, Chris Rochester, our fine uh, producer. Are you concerned that America could be swept away by Hickenlooper fever? 
<laughs> no. <I'm... laughs> he said the same thing, oddly enough. No. Um, did you see the story about him admitting that I he did. took his mother to see a pornographic movie? Not A, but the. Uh. Yeah, I'm pretty sure. Um, I, you know, I think nothing I think is he's, disqualifying I think he's anymore still living in, in the age politics. of Aquarius. I'm just yeah, saying. I'm just. I'm going to tell you, nothing is disqualifying anymore in the. Apparently not. There was a time in this country where a candidate, a Democratic candidate for president, was hounded because he saw a psychiatrist. Okay, those days are Gone. over. Nah, Hickenlooper, he's. I think he's taken advantage of that of that legal recreational weed. Yeah, Colorado is Just, uh, um, filled. Used to live there. Filled with the well, you, nice state. That's exactly right. Um, and they were making it legal a long time before. As it I was just not the denizens I of Colorado. I can't speak to that personally, but I hear that there wasn't a strong enforcement of the um, the, the marijuana laws. You know what their theme prior was. to its legalization. I'd you know what their theme was in Colorado? You gotta grind it till you find it. <laughs> <laughs> well, always lovely catching up with you, ma'am. Uh, this is fantastic. And when I get to spend time with royalty, it's even cooler. You know, Matt, this has been hashtag super bueno. That's exactly right. I'm I trying forgot. to give it a trend. You got trying to get it a trend. And remember that, folks, at home, if you're playing along at home on the Vicki McKenna um, social networks, remember to include hashtag super bueno. It's the... It's the term all the millennial kids are using these days. <laughs> Bringing the bueno. Bringing the bueno. One MacIver podcast at a time. <laughs> There's our theme right there. All condensed. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Vicki McKenna, the queen of conservative talk radio. Vicki Aretha McKenna <laughs> on this edition of MacIver News I can't Makers. wait for the hate mail. I'm Matt Kittle reporting. <laughs>